Welcome to the Muppet Christmas Carol. I am here to tell the story. And I am here for the food. My name is Charles Dickens. And my name is Rizzo the Rat. There he is, Mr. Ebenezer Scrooge. Say, is it getting cold around here? It chills you, chills you to the bone. But there's nothing in nature that freezes your heart like years of being alone. It paints you with indifference like a lady paints with rouge. And the worst of the worst, the most hated and cursed, is the one that we call Scrooge. Unkind as any, and the wrath of many. This is Ebenezer Scrooge. Oh, there goes Mr. Humbug, there goes Mr. Grimm. If they gave a prize for being mean, the winner would be him. Old Scrooge, he loves his money, cause he thinks it gives him power. If he became a flavor, you can bet he would be sour. Even the vegetables don't like him. Master of the underhanded deeds. He charges folks a fortune for his dark and drafty houses. As poor folk live in misery, it's even worse for mouses. Please, sir, I want some cheese. He must be so lonely, he must be so sad. He goes to extremes to convince us he's bad. He's really a victim of fear and of pride. Look close and there must be a sweet man inside. Nah. There goes Mr. Outrage. There goes Mr. Sneer. He has no time for friends or fun. His anchor makes that clear. Don't ask him for a favor, cause his nastiness increases. No crust of bread for those in need. No cheeses for us, Mises. Scrooge liked the cold. He was hard and sharp as a flint, secret and self-contained, as solitary as an oyster. There goes Mr. Heartless. There goes Mr. Cruel. He never gives, he only takes, he lets his hunger rule. And being means a way of life you practice and rehearse. Then all that work is paying off, cause Scrooge is getting worse. Every day, in every way, Scrooge is getting worse. Humbug. Have you ever met a person who's difficult to read? You know, it doesn't matter what you say, what happens, they're just stone-faced and you're like, what's really going on in that brain of yours? Scrooge is not one of those people, is he? Well, he thinks it's plain to see. He just doesn't like Christmas. In fact, he doesn't like a whole host of things. And the tale of the movie is essentially, what does it take to get a person like that to embrace the joy, the fun, and the fellowship of Christmas? And the answer is an encounter that he didn't expect. In the Christmas story, we have a, a very similar narrative, at least that's the way it looks from the outside. Now, one of the central characters in the Christmas story is a guy called Joseph. 
Joseph is completely different to Scrooge because he's really difficult to read. The New Testament talks about his character. The New Testament talks about his intent. But it doesn't talk about his motives. It doesn't talk about what he's thinking as he's planning his deed. And so today I want to jump into this character of Joseph. And if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 18 through verse 25. Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." And, while, and, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. My focus on Joseph's mindset is basically uh, encouraged by the way Matthew writes this story. Three times in this narrative, Matthew uses words that encourage us to think about what Joseph was thinking as he was going through this journey. Let's remember that the scriptures tell us that the battle we face is won and lost in the mind. The scriptures declare that we must come against and take captive every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. I believe that Matthew writes this way intentionally. I studied Matthew's gospel for two years before writing a dictate, uh, uh, my dissertation on it. And as I wrote that, I came to the conclusion that Matthew describes Joseph in these ways, not because he is a Scrooge. Matthew is not intending to portray Joseph as someone who is suppressing Christmas so much as someone who is struggling in the silence that often precedes a work of God. Let that truth sink in for just a second. Joseph is struggling with the silence that often precedes the work of God. 
What I want to do in this message is, is kind of three things. Firstly, I want to talk to us about the way that Matthew writes his gospel. He structures it intentionally with a certain point in mind. Secondly, I want to jump into the words that Matthew uses in this story. And then thirdly, I want to bring it all home to us to ask that question, what do you do in the space between what you know you need and the answer that God gives you? How do you live in that space between your need and God's answer? I think that Matthew is intentionally portraying Joseph as someone who steadfastly wrestles in the silence because he wants to do God's will. Let's jump into the first part of this, the way that Matthew structures and writes his story. If you think about the Christmas story, there are two sources that we go to. The first one is Luke chapter 1. The, the second one is Matthew chapter 1. Now, when we go to Luke, we discover that Mary receives an angel pretty early on in the story. That's kind of understandable, right? She's the one carrying the child. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is also someone who gets a visit from an angel pretty early in the story. But both of these stories are in Luke. In Luke, God turns up early. Angels appear early in the story. In Matthew, the heroes are left to wait. In Luke, Anna and Simeon are described as waiting in the temple, seeking to cast their eyes on the Messiah, and their desire is fulfilled. In Matthew's gospel, we read of an evil despot who can't wait to set his hands on the Messiah, leaving the real royal family to become Christmas refugees as they flee into Egypt. In Luke, the disciples go onto the mission field and return rejoicing at all of the wonders that they have seen God do. In Matthew chapter 10, the disciples are sent onto the mission field and never return because they have been arrested, opposed, persecuted, and brought before governors to give an account for the faith that they have. In Luke, God shows up. In Matthew, God often makes his people wait. Mary got an angel early in the story. Zechariah gets an angel early in the story. But Joseph, if we piece the events together, may well have had to wait for his visitation for as long as four months, shortly before Mary returned from visiting Elizabeth. Four months is a long time to wait, isn't it? How many Josephs have we got in the room, I wonder? How many of you have tried to live your life right? Tried to do the right thing, the right way, for the right reasons? And yet you encounter something that you never expected, a worldview that you never thought would be possible, something that you never entertained ever happening to you. And despite all of your prayers, all of your groaning, all of your pouring your heart out before God, God simply lets you wait. Friends, if we're honest, most of our faith is more like that which is described in Matthew than is that which is described in Luke. For many of us too, 
God often lets us wait. I think the reason Matthew does this is because he's writing to a community of believers that are struggling. He's writing at the, that point in time to a community of believers who are just coming out from within the walls of Judaism. Until that point, Christianity had been assumed and subsumed within Judaism, but the opposition to Christ and the persecution that they faced were gradually thrusting them outside of Judaism. Believers were being opposed and were being persecuted. They expected Jesus to come back, but He hadn't. He was leaving them waiting, and they wanted to know why. This is so integral to the way that Matthew writes his gospel that the easiest way to show it is for you to go home and read Luke chapter, eight, uh, Luke chapter 7, the story of uh, Jesus healing the Roman centurion servant, and compare that story with the way that Matthew describes it in Matthew chapter 8. What you will discover is that in Matthew, Matthew eliminates all of the non-essential characters, all of the non-essential buildings, all of the non-essential movements, and the the entire story, just like every miracle story in Matthew, is a prayer-like petition where a person in need, a person who's needed to wait, has a one-to-one -one conversation with Jesus. They express their heart to Him, their need to Him. They address Him in faith, and Jesus eventually answers their need. When you look at the Gospel of Matthew, it is written in such a way that makes Joseph the example of faith, not the expression of doubt. And so for this reason alone, we should be able to read the story of Matthew in such a way that makes us think that maybe Joseph didn't doubt what Mary said to her. Maybe he's struggling because he believes and he doesn't know what to do with the news he's heard. That idea is foreign to many of us, and yet it's, it's faithful to the way that Matthew writes his entire gospel. Part one, the unique way Matthew writes the story. Part two takes us into the unique way Matthew has written the story of Joseph. As I've said, he uses a number of words in here that take us into Joseph's mind. It takes us into what's going on in this righteous man as he considers what to do when God hasn't told him what to do. The first set of words here is not wanting and was minded. We read here that it says, not Joseph, not wanting to make a public example of her, was minded to put her away secretly. There are two Greek words here. In the New Testament, these Greek words often interplay with one another. The first one, not wanting, it talks about the drive, the purpose, the vision, the dedication with which Matthew, Matthew says Joseph lived his life. Joseph was a just man. He's driven by justice. He's driven by righteousness. In other words, he wants to do the right thing, the right way, for the right reasons, because he wants to live right before God. The second word here is was minded. This one talks about that internal disposition. It talks about what's going on the inside, what he's feeling, what's going through his heart as he's processing all of this. And this word reveals him to be a man of compassion. So get this, what we have in the gospel then is the first example of someone who tries to balance justice and mercy. 
the truth and love. Yet again, this is not the example of someone who doesn't believe God, but is typical, as we'll see in just a moment, of someone who does believe in God. Because the righteous in Matthew are not legalistic Pharisees. The righteous in Matthew are the ones who treat those they love and everybody else with love. We see this in this next word, just. Matthew is called a just or a righteous man. We see the meaning of the word there. It means just, righteous, and correct. To be just is to condition one's life by a standard that is not ours, but is God's. Romans 2.13, Romans 5.7, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Living justly speaks of a person whose actions conform to their character. Now, why do they do this? They live right because they have been made right with God. They have a relationship with God that means that what is going on on the inside is naturally expressed through the way they live on the outside. And what you can see here is all of the times this idea actually comes up in Matthew's gospel. It is a key part of what it means to live right with God. Yet again, friends, what we don't have here is the example of a believer who doubts, but of a believer who is setting an example that everyone, even Jesus himself, would follow. Jesus himself? Yeah. Matthew chapter 9, where Matthew himself is called to follow Jesus. If you know the gospel, you know the story. Jesus looks at Matthew and says, hey, Matthew, I'm coming to your house for dinner. Matthew is freaked out because he's a sinful man, and Jews, especially rabbis, would never go to the house of someone who is a tax collector. Jesus goes there shares fellowship with these sinful people and the religious people, the legalistic people, the just people, are up in arms. And as Jesus emerges, they say, what have you done? How could you possibly be with someone like that? And this is what Jesus says. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Joseph's character is just and merciful. See, he sets the example that his son, Jesus, follows. And doesn't justice and mercy continue on in the story of Jesus? Christmas, we remember his birth, but we realize that there is a future to the life of Jesus too, and that involves the cross. It involves his death. Isn't the death of Jesus the perfect expression of justice and mercy? Don't we recognize that there on the cross, our punishment for sin was paid by Jesus himself? There on the cross, we recognize that God's just standard was satisfied because the price of sin is always death. But we also see God's mercy, His compassion, because there at the cross, we recognize that Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin. Yet again, right here, we see right from the very start of the gospel, someone who doesn't doubt, but someone who is setting a standard that everyone, including the Son of God, would follow to its logical end. Joseph sets the example that everyone follows. Now, if you think about all of this, it really forces us to think, doesn't it, about why Joseph was willing to put 
Mary to one side quietly if he's such a just man? There are many reasons for that, but I just want to explore two. I want to suggest to you that it is not the only scenario to believe that Matthew has Joseph divorcing Mary because he doesn't believe it is also possible that Matthew has Joseph divorcing Mary because he does believe, but believes it's the only logical thing to do. A number of reasons for that. Let me just give you two. First one is a cultural reason. In Galilee, where Joseph was, they were more conservative than they were in Judea. And in a conservative religious town like that, if you were going to take as your wife a woman who was thought to be impregnated by another man, then you were considered to be doing so for one simple reason, you were about to exploit that woman for prostitution. We've already seen Joseph is a just man. He is not going to give the impression that he does not live the right way for the right reasons because he has a right relationship with God. He's struggling with the cultural dynamics here and what it means to take Mary as his wife. The second reason is more understandable. It's more scriptural, and it has to do with what the behavior was prescribed for a man in Joseph's situation. The background to Joseph's story is Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 18 through 27. In the first part of that text, verses 18 through 24, we read about what a man should do when he finds out that his betrothed is impregnated through another man. In the text of Deuteronomy, it says that the man, Joseph, should take the woman outside of the door of the home and the woman should be stoned. She would be killed. Now, there is no indication that in that first century world that this would happen. So what would happen is that a public example would be made of her. This word public example in the text is used a number of times in the Scriptures, Hebrews 6.6 6, and also Colossians 2.15. That's the most important one. In Colossians 2.15, we read that Jesus triumphed over the principalities and powers, making a public, a public spectacle of them through the cross. The idea here is that Jesus is portrayed as that a victorious king riding through the city on a horse to cheering crowds with all of those enemies that are being taken captive, being paraded in humiliation behind her. This is the idea. The scriptures are pretty clear about what would be prescribed behavior for someone who believed that the wife betrothed was pregnant through another man. Joseph knows what he would need to do. The scriptures are clear about what Joseph would need to do. Secondly, Deuteronomy 22, 25 through 27, talks about another scenario. This scenario is where a woman is violated by a sexual predator, a male. The scriptures are clear about what the man should do in a situation like that. The man, the husband, Joseph, should not punish Mary because she has done nothing wrong. He should still accept her as his wife. So in other words, the scriptures are pretty clear on two of the scenarios here. Firstly, a just person neither ignores the wrong. You don't turn a blind eye to wrong. Sin must be purged. Justice must be satisfied. And secondly, you also do not condemn the wronged. 
two scenarios. Joseph knows what he needs to do. But wait a minute. What did Mary tell him? Mary said, Joseph, an angel visited me and told me that I am going to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Joseph would listen to this, and all of a sudden, he's confronted with a worldview that he never imagined. And as a righteous man, he would think, wait a minute, uh, where does it say in the Scriptures what I'm supposed to do in a situation like this? See, this is a scenario that is not defined in the Old Testament. It's not described in the Old Testament. Two of the three scenarios are. But on this one, he does not know what it is that he is supposed to be doing. And he thinks, wait a minute, since I had no part to play in this, maybe I have no future in this either. Maybe the easiest thing for me to do is to get out of the way. See, isn't that often the way it works? When something happens to us, something affronts us, something unexpected happened to us, don't we think the same way? Don't we kind of often search through the Scriptures to find out the answer, and then we realize that our specific situation isn't found in the Scriptures, and we wonder what it is that we're supposed to do? That's exactly where Joseph is. He's in a situation where his situation is not described in the Word of God. And guess what happens? He starts to spin. His mind starts to spin. He's a just man. He wants to do the right thing. He's a compassionate man. He wants to do the right thing the right way. But he's also facing something that no one in history has ever faced before. The scriptures are silent, and he simply does not know what to do. Any of you been in a situation where you don't know what to do? When you have been in a situation like that, you notice something happening, right? Your emotions start to kick in. You try to keep your head right. You try to keep your mind focused on what you know to be the right thing to do. But your emotions get in. And this is why I love this third word. It's that word, while he was thinking about these things. He is so consumed by this, he is thinking about it while he's sleeping. Any of you ever been there? When you're waking, you're thinking about it. When you're sleeping, you're thinking about it. You cannot get away from it because it consumes you. Look at the meaning of the word here. It's a compound word, which means two words put together. The first word is in and in mind. He's in his own mind. He's playing around in his own mind. But notice the way that this word is used. It's not just a thought. It also involves emotion, anger, wrath, indignation, and outburst. The word here portrays him to be a man whose spirit has been provoked. He's waiting. He's in turmoil. Again, how many Josephs have we got in this room? How many of you have been in similar situations where you have been waiting faithfully, but God has kept you waiting? Again, the more you look at this, this is not the behavior of someone who doubts. This is the behavior of someone who's been confronted with something that has just shaken up his world. And God lets him wait. I keep asking myself, God, why did you make him wait? Why didn't you just send an angel earlier to him like you did to Mary and like you did to Zechariah? He kept him waiting. I think one of the reasons why God kept him waiting is because 
through the waiting, he developed the type of perseverance and the kind of spiritual stamina that was needed to raise the Son of God with all of the opposition and the persecution that came his way. If you know anything about the Gospels, you know that over and over and over again, the accusation of illegitimacy confronted Joseph wherever he went. In the waiting, God was working. But secondly, I think Joseph was kept waiting because he was being used to set an example to all of us who have Matean, Matthew-like experiences rather than Luke-like experiences. He was being used as an example to all of us to say, listen, while you wait, do not compromise your character or your calling. Even when your emotions are going, when it's easier to walk away than to stay true, don't compromise because your breakthrough, your revelation is coming too. I think that's why God made him wait. Part three, what does all of this mean for you and me? Three things I was thinking about. First, I'm thinking about the type of transformation that many of us need when we face our own wrong. In the movie, Scrooge is brought face to face with his own wrong. He's brought face to face with a future that would continue on the same path unless something drastically changed. And I think Joseph teaches us very clearly that when God intervenes and asks us to make a change, we have to be willing to make that change no matter what it costs. When God revealed himself to Joseph, it's interesting what he says first is not, hey, Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. What he says first is, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Why? The issue is what he needs to do with what God's done. Then afterwards, it comes to the point of, Mary is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. But once Joseph receives this revelation, he steps fully and completely into the future, no matter what it costs. I think the first lesson here is, listen, if God invites us to step into a future that involves sacrifices, the best thing we can do for us and the best thing we can do for people around us is to step into that future and to pay that price. In the movie, Scrooge steps into that future. As he comes face to face with the consequences of his, of his wrong choices, he weeps bitterly. He thinks that there's no hope for him. But then, in a way that he did not expect, he receives that grace of Christmas that ultimately causes him to have a new beginning. Rather than me describe that to you, take a look at his transformation. the man I was. Why would you show me this if I was past all hope? <laughs> I, I will honor Christmas and try to keep it all the year. I will live my life in the past, the present, and the future. 
I will not shut out the lessons the spirits have taught me. Tell me that I may sponge out the writing on this stone. <laughs> oh, spirit, please speak to me. <laughs> I'm home. Bedposts were his own. The bed was his own. The room was his own. Hi, guys. We're back. We mm. promised we would be. But the thing that made Scrooge happiest of all was that his life lay before him. And it could be changed. I will live my life in the past, the present, and the future of Jacob and Robert Marley. Oh, heaven in the Christmas time be praised for this day. I say it on my knees, Jacob and Robert. On my knees. Oh. They're not torn down. They're here. And I'm here. More's a miracle. Oh. Oh. I don't know what to do. I, I'm as light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm, I'm as merry as a schoolboy. I, I love that scene. It, it depicts what happens the moment where we recognize the, the cost and the consequences of our own sin and just receive the incredible grace that is offered to us through the coming of Christ. It's a sweet moment of transformation. The Bible says our past is gone and our new has arrived. We can step into that future with joy and with courage. And that's exactly what Scrooge does. The second thing I think I learned from this story of Joseph is that how in those times where God makes us wait, it is so easy to feel like we've been overlooked. Maybe you're here and you're waiting. Maybe you've tried to live faithfully, but you're waiting and you just can't get rid of that feeling that you're being overlooked. When you feel overlooked, often your faith feels defeated. Your, your demeanor is despondent. Other people see it. Catherine was the name of Martin Luther, the German reformer's wife. She saw Luther, her husband, going through a very difficult, dark period, and she noticed how his faith had become so despondent, and she determined to do something about it. History says that she dressed up in mourning, in funeral clothes. Luther looked at her and said, Catherine, has someone died? Catherine said, yes, Luther said, who? And she said, well, by the look of your behavior, God has. Oh, to have a wife like that, huh? Luther got the point. In his waiting for God to intervene, it had actually made his faith despondent. He chose to doubt. He struggled to believe. If you're in that season of waiting, you may also be experiencing that very same temptation where anguish of your soul stirs within you as you think on these things. My encouragement to you, Joseph is written as an example to you. God is saying, listen, Joseph's example can be your experience. Believe. Finally here, Joseph teaches, I think, all of us guys something. Carson notes that as with Joseph, so it is with all of us. 
men because sometimes our wives get taken into a deeper relationship with Jesus before we do. And when that happens, emotions can often trigger inside of us because we feel like we're being left behind. And like Joseph, we can also start to think about these things. We can become agitated. For some of us, we may well be afraid of where this new passion for Jesus will lead because, well, basically, our wife is becoming too spiritual. We're concerned about what happens if this other man, Jesus, starts to lead our wife rather than us. Listen, if that's you, if you're in a season as a guy where your wife or your family are having more revelation of God, a deeper revelation of God than you are, then I believe that what God wants to say to you today is exactly what the angel said to Joseph. Fear not. Do not worry. Listen, husbands, guys out there, the more our wives fall in love with Jesus, the deeper their relationship gets, the exponential growth in their ability to love us and to love our family just grows and grows and grows. So guys, this Christmas, don't just allow your wife to go to church. Allow your wife to grow in church. Believe. Let her grow. Have courage. Trust God in the waiting. And soon enough, you will have your revelation too. As you wait, Wait like the psalmist says in Psalm 62, verses 1 and verse 5. For God alone my soul waits in silence. My hope is from Him. Believe.